Part Three, Chapter Five of Madame Bovary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Sage. Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Part Three, Chapter Five. She went on Thursdays. She got up and dressed silently in order not to awaken Charles, who would have made remarks about her getting ready too early. Next she walked up and down, went to the windows, and looked out at the place. The early dawn was broadening between the pillars of the market, and the chemist's shop, with the shutters still up, showed in the pale light of the dawn the large letters of his signboard. When the clock pointed to a quarter past seven, she went off to the Lion d'Or, whose door Artemise opened yawning. The girl then made up the coals covered by the cinders, and Emma remained alone in the kitchen. Now and again she went out. Hiver was leisurely harnessing his horses, listening, moreover, to Mère Lefrancois, who, passing her head and nightcap through a grating, was charging him with commissions and giving him explanations that would have confused anyone else. Emma kept beating the soles of her boots against the pavement of the yard. At last, when he had eaten his soup, put on his cloak, lighted his pipe, and grasped his whip, he calmly installed himself on his seat. The hirondelle started at a slow trot, and for about a mile stopped here and there to pick up passengers who waited for it. Standing at the border of the road, in front of their yard gates. Those who had secured seats the evening before kept it waiting. Some even were still in bed in their houses. Hiver called, shouted, swore. Then he got down from his seat and went and knocked loudly at the doors. The wind blew through the cracked windows. The four seats, however, filled up. The carriage rolled off. Rows of apple-trees followed one upon another, and the road between its two long ditches, full of yellow water, rose constantly, narrowing towards the horizon. Emma knew it from end to end. She knew that after a meadow there was a signpost, next an elm, a barn, or a hut of a lime-kiln tender. Sometimes even, in the hope of getting some surprise, she shut her eyes, but she never lost the clear perception of the distance to be traversed. At last the brick houses began to follow one another more closely. The earth resounded beneath the wheels. The hirondelle glided between the gardens, where, through an opening, one saw statues, a periwinkle plant, clipped yews, and a swing. Then, on a sudden, the town appeared, sloping down like an amphitheater, and drowned in the fog. It widened out beyond the bridges confusedly. Then the open country spread away with a monotonous movement till it touched in the distance the vague line of the pale sky. Seen thus from above, the whole landscape looked immovable as a picture. The anchored ships were massed in one corner, the river curved round the foot of the green hills, and the isles, oblique in shape, lay on the water like large, motionless black fishes. The factory chimneys belched forth immense brown fumes that were blown away at the top. One heard the rumbling of the foundries, together with the clear chimes of the churches that stood out in the mist. The leafless trees on the boulevards made violet thickets in the midst of the houses, and the roofs, 
all shining with the rain, threw back unequal reflections, according to the height of the quarters in which they were. Sometimes a gust of wind drove the clouds toward the St. Catherine Hills, like aerial waves that broke silently against a cliff. A giddiness seemed to her to detach itself from this mass of existence, and her heart swelled as if the hundred and twenty thousand souls that palpitated there had all at once sent into it the vapor of the passions she fancied theirs. Her love grew in the presence of this vastness and expanded with tumult to the vague murmurings that rose towards her. She poured it out upon the square, on the walks, on the streets, and the old Norman city outspread before her eyes as an enormous capital, as a Babylon into which she was entering. She leant with both hands against the window, drinking in the breeze. The three horses galloped, the stones grated in the mud, the diligence rocked, and Hiver, from afar, hailed the carts on the road, while the bourgeois, who had spent the night at Guillam Woods came quietly down the hill in their little family carriages. They stopped at the barrier. Emma undid her overshoes, put on other gloves, rearranged her shawl, and some twenty paces further she got down from the hirondelle. The town was then awakening. Shop boys in caps were cleaning up the shop fronts, and women with baskets against their hips at intervals uttered sonorous cries at the corners of streets. She walked with downcast eyes close to the walls and smiling with pleasure under her lowered black veil. For fear of being seen, she did not usually take the most direct road. She plunged into dark alleys and, all perspiring, reached the bottom of the Rue Nationale near the fountain that stands there. It is the quarter for theaters, public houses, and whores. Often a cart would pass near her, bearing some shaky sceneries. Waiters in aprons were sprinkling sand on the flagstones between green shrubs. It all smelt of absinthe, cigars, and oysters. She turned down a street. She recognized him by his curling hair that escaped from beneath his hat. Leon walked along the pavement. She followed him to the hotel. He went up, opened the door, entered. What an embrace! Then, after the kisses, the words gushed forth. They told each other the sorrows of the week, the presentiments, the anxiety for the letters. But now everything was forgotten. They gazed into each other's faces with voluptuous laughs and tender names. The bed was large, of mahogany, in the shape of a boat. The curtains were in red levantine, that hung from the ceiling and bulged out too much towards the bell-shaped bedside. And nothing in the world was so lovely as her brown head and white skin standing out against this purple color, when, with a movement of shame, she crossed her bare arms, hiding her face in her hands. The warm room, with its discreet carpet, its gay ornaments, and its calm light, seemed made for the intimacies of passion, the curtain-rods ending in arrows, their brass pegs, and the great bowls of the fire-dogs shone suddenly when the sun came in. On the chimney, between the candelabra, there were two of those pink shells in which one hears the murmur of the sea if one holds them to the ear. They loved that dear room, so full of gaiety, despite its rather faded splendor. They always found the furniture in the same place, and sometimes hairpins that she had forgotten the Thursday before under the pedestal of the clock. 
They lunched by the fireside on a little round table inlaid with rosewood. Emma carved, put bits on his plate with all sorts of coquettish ways, and she laughed with a sonorous and libertine laugh when the froth of the champagne ran over from the glass to the rings on her fingers. They were so completely lost in the possession of each other that they thought themselves in their own house, and they would live there till death, like two spouses, eternally young. They said, our room, our carpet. She even said, my slippers, a gift of Leon's, a whim she had had. They were pink satin, bordered with swan's down. When she sat on his knees, her legs, then too short, hung in the air, and the dainty shoe that had no back to it was held only by the toes to her bare foot. He for the first time enjoyed the inexpressible delicacy of feminine refinements. He had never met this grace of language, this reserve of clothing, these poses of the weary dove. He admired the exultation of her soul and the lace on her petticoat. Besides, was she not a lady and a married woman, a real mistress in fine? By the diversity of her humor, in turn mystical or mirthful, talkative, taciturn, passionate, careless, she awakened in him a thousand desires, called up instincts or memories. She was the mistress of all the novels, the heroine of all the dramas, the vague she of all the volumes of verse. He found again on her shoulder the amber coloring of the odalisque bathing. She had the long waist of feudal chatelaines, and she resembled the pale woman of Barcelona. But above all, she was the angel. Often looking at her, it seemed to him that his soul, escaping towards her, spread like a wave about the outline of her head, and descended, drawn down into the whiteness of her breast. He knelt on the ground before her, and with both elbows on her knees, looked at her with a smile his face upturned. She bent over him and murmured, as if choking with intoxication, Oh, don't move. Do not speak. Look at me. Something so sweet comes from your eyes that helps me so much. She called him child. Child, do you love me? And she did not listen for his answer in the haste of her lips that fastened to his mouth. On the clock there was a bronze Cupid, who smirked as he bent his arms beneath a golden garland. They had laughed at it many a time, but when they had to part, everything seemed serious to them. Motionless in front of each other, they kept repeating, Till Thursday, till Thursday. Suddenly she seized his head between her hands, kissed him hurriedly on the forehead, crying adieu, and rushed down the stairs. She went to a hairdresser's in the Rue de la Comédie to have her hair arranged. Night fell. The gas was lighted in the shop. She heard the bell at the theater calling the mummers to the performance, and she saw, passing opposite, men with white faces and women in faded gowns going in at the stage door. It was hot in the room, small and too low, where the stove was hissing in the midst of wigs and pomades. The smell of the tongs, together with the greasy hands that handled her head, soon stunned her, and she dozed a little in her wrapper. Often, as he did her hair, the man offered her tickets for a masked ball. Then she went away. She went up the streets, reached the Croix Rouge, put on her overshoes that she had hidden in the morning under the seat, and sank into her place among the impatient passengers. 
Some got out at the foot of the hill. She remained alone in the carriage. At every turning, all the lights of the town were seen more and more completely, making a great luminous vapor about the dim houses. Emma knelt on the cushions, and her eyes wandered over the dazzling light. She sobbed, called on Leon, sent him tender words and kisses lost in the wind. On the hillside a poor devil wandered about with his stick in the midst of the diligences. A mass of rags covered his shoulder, and an old, staved-in beaver, turned out like a basin, hid his face. But when he took it off, he discovered, in the place of eyelids, empty and bloody orbits. The flesh hung in red shreds, and there flowed from it liquids that congealed into green scale down to the nose, whose black nostrils sniffed convulsively. To speak to you, he threw back his head with an idiotic laugh. Then his bluish eyeballs, rolling constantly at the temples, beat against the edge of the open wound. He sang a little song as he followed the carriages. Maids and the warmth of a summer day dream of love and of love always. And all the rest was about birds and sunshine and green leaves. Sometimes he appeared suddenly behind Emma, bareheaded, and she drew back with a cry. Hiver made fun of him. He would advise him to get a booth at the Saint-Romain, fair, or else ask him, laughing, how his young woman was. Often they had started when, with a sudden movement, his hat entered the diligence through the small window, while he clung with his other arm to the footboard, between the wheels splashing mud. His voice, feeble at first and quavering, grew sharp. It resounded in the night like the indistinct moan of a vague distress, and through the ringing of the bells, the murmur of the trees, and the rumbling of the empty vehicle, it had a far-off sound that disturbed Emma. It went to the bottom of her soul like a whirlwind in an abyss, and carried her away into the distances of a boundless melancholy. But Hiver, noticing a weight behind, gave the blind man sharp cuts with his whip, the thong lashed his wounds, and he fell back into the mud with a yell. Then the passengers in the hirondelle ended by falling asleep, some with open mouths, others with lowered chins, leaning against their neighbor's shoulder, or with their arm passed through the strap, oscillating regularly with the jolting of the carriage and the reflection of the lantern swinging without on the crupper of the wheeler. Penetrating into the interior through the chocolate calico curtains grew sanguineous shadows over all these motionless people. Emma, drunk with grief, shivered in her clothes, feeling her feet grow colder and colder and death in her soul. Charles at home was waiting for her. The hirondelle was always late on Thursdays. Madame arrived at last and scarcely kissed the child. The dinner was not ready. No matter. She excused the servant. This girl now seemed allowed to do just as she liked. Often her husband, noting her pallor, asked if she were unwell. No, said Emma. But, he replied, you seem so strange this evening. Oh, it's nothing, nothing. They were even days when she had no sooner come in than she went up to her room, and Justin, happening to be there, moved about noiselessly, quicker at helping her than the best of maids. He put the matches ready, the candlestick, a book, arranged her nightgown, turned back the bedclothes. Come, she said, that will do. Now you can go. 
for he stood there, his hands hanging down and his eyes wide open, as if enmeshed in the innumerable threads of a sudden reverie. The following day was frightful, and those that came after still more unbearable, because of her impatience to once again seize her happiness, an ardent lust inflamed by the images of past experience, and that burst forth freely on the seventh day beneath Leon's caresses. His ardors were hidden beneath outbursts of wonder and gratitude. Emma tasted this love in a discreet, absorbed fashion, maintained it by all the artifices of her tenderness, and trembled a little lest it should be lost later on. She often said to him with her sweet, melancholy voice, Ah, you too will leave me. You will marry. You will be like all the others. He asked, What others? Why? Like men, she replied, then added, repulsing him with a languid movement, You are all evil. One day, as they were talking philosophically of earthly disillusions, to experiment on his jealousy, or yielding perhaps to an overstrong need to pour out her heart, she told him that formerly, before him, she had loved someone. Not like you, she went on quickly, protesting by the head of her child that nothing had passed between them. The young man believed her, but none the less questioned her to find out what he was. He was a ship's captain, my dear. Was this not preventing any inquiry, and, at the same time, assuming a higher ground, through this pretended fascination exercised over a man who must have been of warlike nature and accustomed to receive homage? The clerk then felt the loneliness of his position. He longed for epaulets, crosses, titles, all that would please her. He gathered that from her spendthrift habits. Emma nevertheless concealed many of these extravagant fancies, such as her wish to have a blue Tilbury to drive into Rouen, drawn by an English horse and driven by a groom in top-boots. It was Justin who had inspired her with this whim, by begging her to take him into her service as valet de chambre, and if the privation of it did not lessen the pleasure of her arrival at each rendezvous, it certainly augmented the bitterness of the return. Often, when they talked together of Paris, she ended by murmuring, Ah, how happy we should be there! Are we not happy? gently answered the young man, passing his hands over her hair. Yes, that's true, she said. I am mad. Kiss me. To her husband she was more charming than ever. She made him pistachio creams and played him waltzes after dinner. So he thought himself the most fortunate of men, and Emma was without uneasiness, when, one evening suddenly, he said, It is Mademoiselle L'Empereur, isn't it, who gives you lessons? Yes. Well, I saw her just now, Charles went on, at Madame Ligère. I spoke to her about you, and she doesn't know you. This was like a thunderclap. However, she replied quite naturally, Ah! No doubt she forgot my name. But perhaps, said the doctor, there are several demoiselles, l'empereur at Rouen, who are music mistresses. Possibly. Then quickly. But I have my receipts. Here, see. And she went to the writing table, ransacked all the drawers, rummaged the papers, and at last lost her head so completely that Charles earnestly begged her not to take so much trouble about those wretched receipts. Oh, I will find them, she said. 
and in fact on the following Friday, as Charles was putting on one of his boots in the dark cabinet where his clothes were kept, he felt a piece of paper between the leather and his sock. He took it out and read, Received for three months' lessons and several pieces of music, the sum of sixty-three francs. Felicie, l'empereur, professor of music. How the devil did it get into my boots? It must, she replied, have fallen from the old box of bills that is on the edge of the shelf. From that moment her existence was but one long tissue of lies, in which she enveloped her love as in veils to hide it. It was a want, a mania, a pleasure carried to such an extent that if she said she had the day before walked on the right side of a road, one might know she had taken the left. One morning, when she had gone, as usual, rather lightly clothed, it suddenly began to snow, and as Charles was watching the weather from the window, he caught sight of Monsieur Bonnecien in the chaise of Monsieur Touvache, who was driving him to Rouen. Then he went down to give the priest a thick shawl that he was to hand over to Emma as soon as he reached the Croix Rouge. When he got to the inn, Monsieur Bonnecin asked for the wife of the Yonville doctor. The landlady replied that she very rarely came to her establishment. So that evening, when he recognized Madame Bovary in the Hirondelle, the cure told her his dilemma, without, however, appearing to attach much importance to it, for he began praising a preacher who was doing wonders at the cathedral, and whom all the ladies were rushing to hear. Still, if he did not ask for an explanation, others, later on, might prove less discreet. So she thought well to get down each time at the Croix Rouge, so that the good folk of her village, who saw her on the stairs, should suspect nothing. One day, however, Monsieur Lereux met her coming out of the Hotel de Boulogne on Lyon's arm, and she was frightened, thinking he would gossip. He was not such a fool, but three days after he came to her room, shut the door and said, I must have some money. She declared she could not give him any. Lereux burst into lamentations and reminded her of all the kindnesses he had shown her. In fact, of the two bills signed by Charles, Emma, up to the present, had paid only one. As to the second, the shopkeeper, at her request, had consented to replace it by another, which again had been renewed for a long date. Then he drew from his pocket a list of goods not paid for, to wit, the curtains, the carpet, the material for the armchairs, several dresses, the diverse articles of dress, the bills for which amounted to about two thousand francs. She bowed her head. He went on. But if you haven't any ready money, you have an estate. And he reminded her of a miserable little hovel situated at Bonville, near Aumal, that brought in almost nothing. It had formerly been part of a small farm sold by Monsieur Bovary Sr., for Lereux knew everything, even to the number of acres and the names of the neighbors. If I were in your place, he said, I should clear myself of my debts and have money left over. She pointed out the difficulty of getting a purchaser. He held out the hope of finding one, but she asked him how she should manage to sell it. "'Haven't you the power of attorney?' he replied. The phrase came to her like a breath of fresh air. "'Leave me the bill,' said Emma. "'Oh, it isn't worth while,' said Lerreux. He came back the following week and boasted of having, after much trouble, 
at last discovered a certain Langrois, who for a long time had had an eye on the property, but without mentioning his price. Never mind the price, she cried, but they would, on the contrary, have to wait to sound the fellow. The thing was worth a journey, and as she could not undertake it, he offered to go to the place to have an interview with Langrois. On his return he announced that the purchaser proposed four thousand francs. Emma was radiant at the news. Frankly, he added, that's a good price. She drew the half-sum at once, and when she was about to pay her account, the shopkeeper said, It really grieves me, on my word, to see you depriving yourself all at once of such a big sum as that. Then she looked at the bank-notes, and dreaming of the unlimited number of rendezvous represented by those two thousand francs, she stammered, What? What? Oh, he went on, laughing good-naturedly, one puts anything one likes on receipts. Don't you think I know what household affairs are? And he looked at her fixedly, while in his hand he held two long papers that he slid between his nails. At last, opening his pocket-book, he spread out on the table four bills to order, each for a thousand francs. Sign these, he said, and keep it all. She cried out, scandalized. But if I give you the surplus, replies Monsieur Lheureux imprudently, is that not helping you? And taking a pen, he wrote at the bottom of the account, received of Madame Bovary four thousand francs. Now who can trouble you, since in six months you'll draw the arrears for your cottage, and I don't make the last bill due till after you've been paid? Emma grew rather confused in her calculations, and her ears tingled as if gold pieces, bursting from their bags, rang all round on the floor. At last Lheureux explained that he had a very good friend, Vincard, a broker at Rouen, who would discount these four bills. Then he himself would hand over to Madame the remainder after the actual debt was paid. But instead of two thousand francs, he brought only eighteen hundred, for the friend, Vincard, which was only fair, had deducted two hundred francs for commission and discount. Then he carelessly asked for a receipt. You understand, in business, sometimes, and, and with the date, if you please, with the date. A horizon of realizable whims opened out before Emma. She was prudent enough to lay by a thousand crowns with which the first three bills were paid when they fell due. But the fourth, by chance, came to the house on a Thursday, and Charles, quite upset, patiently awaited his wife's return for an explanation. If she had not told him about this bill, it was only to spare him such domestic worries. She sat on his knees, caressed him, cooed to him, gave him a long enumeration of all the indispensable things that had been got on credit. Really, you must confess, considering the quantity, it isn't too dear. Charles, at his wit's end, soon had recourse to the eternal Lheureux who swore he would arrange matters if the doctor would sign him two bills, one of which was for seven hundred francs, payable in three months. In order to arrange for this, he wrote his mother a pathetic letter. Instead of sending a reply, she came herself, and when Emma wanted to know whether he had got anything out of her, yes, he replied, but she wants to see the account. The next morning, at daybreak, Emma ran to Lheureux to beg him to make out another account for not more than a thousand francs, for to show the one for four thousand, it would be necessary to say that she had paid two-thirds and confess, 
consequently, the sale of the estate. A negotiation admirably carried out by the shopkeeper, and which, in fact, was only actually known later on. Despite the low price of each article, Madame Bovary Sr., of course, thought the expenditure extravagant. Couldn't you do without a carpet? Why have recovered the armchairs? In my time, there was a single armchair in a house for elderly persons. At any rate, it was so at my mother's, who was a good woman, I can tell you. Everybody can't be rich. No fortune can hold out against waste. I should be ashamed to coddle myself as you do, and yet I am old. I need looking after. And there, there, fitting up gowns, falals. What? Silk for lining at two francs? When you can get jaconet for ten sous or even for eight? That would do well enough? Emma, lying on a lounge, replied as quietly as possible. Ah, madame, enough, enough. The other went on lecturing her, predicting they would end in the workhouse, but it was Bovary's fault. Luckily he had promised to destroy the power of attorney. What? Ah, he swore he would, went on the good woman. Emma opened the window, called Charles, and the poor fellow was obliged to confess the promise torn from him by his mother. Emma disappeared, then came back quickly, and majestically handed her a thick piece of paper. Thank you, said the old woman, and she threw the power of attorney into the fire. Emma began to laugh, a strident, piercing, continuous laugh. She had an attack of hysterics. Oh, my God, cried Charles. Ah, you really are wrong. You came here and make scenes with her. His mother, shrugging her shoulders, declared it was all put on. But Charles, rebelling for the first time, took his wife's part so that Madame Bovary Sr. said she would leave. She went the very next day, and on the threshold, as he was trying to detain her, she replied, No, no, you love her better than me, and you're right. It's natural. For the rest, so much the worse. You'll see. Good day, for I am not likely to come soon again, as you say, to make scenes. Charles, nevertheless, was very crestfallen before Emma who did not hide the resentment she still felt at his want of confidence, and it needed many prayers before she would consent to have another power of attorney. He even accompanied her to Monsieur Guillamin to have a second one, just like the other, drawn up. "'I understand,' said the notary. "'A man of science can't be worried with the practical details of life.' And Charles felt relieved by this comfortable reflection, which gave his weakness the flattering appearance of higher preoccupation." and what an outburst the next Thursday at the hotel in their room with Leon. She laughed, cried, sang, sent for sherbets, wanted to smoke cigarettes, seemed to him wild and extravagant, but adorable, superb. He did not know what recreation of her whole being drove her more and more to plunge into the pleasures of life. She was becoming irritable, greedy, voluptuous, and she walked about the streets with him, carrying her head high, without fear, so she said, of compromising herself. At times, however, Emma shuddered at the sudden thought of meeting Rodolphe, for it seemed to her that, although they were separated forever, she was not completely free from her subjugation to him. One night she did not return to Yonville at all. Charles lost his head with anxiety, and little Bertha would not go to bed without her mamma 
and sobbed enough to break her heart. Justin had gone out searching the road at random. Monsieur Homais even had left his pharmacy. At last, at eleven o'clock, able to bear it no longer, Charles harnessed his chaise, jumped in, whipped up his horse, and reached the Croix Rouge about two o'clock in the morning. No one there. He thought that the clerk had perhaps seen her, but where did he live? Happily, Charles remembered his employer's address and rushed off there. Day was breaking, and he could distinguish the escutcheons over the door and knocked. Someone, without opening the door, shouted out the required information, adding a few insults to those who disturb people in the middle of the night. The house, inhabited by the clerk, had neither bell, knocker, nor porter. Charles knocked loudly at the shutters with his hands. A policeman happened to pass by. Then he was frightened and went away. "'I'm mad,' he said. No doubt they kept her to dinner at Monsieur Lormeux, but the Lormeux no longer lived at Rouen. She probably stayed to look after Madame Dubreuil. Why, Madame Dubreuil has been dead these ten months. Where can she be? An idea occurred to him. At a café he asked for a directory, and hurriedly looked for the name of Mademoiselle L'Empereur, who lived at number 74, Rue de l'René de Maroquinier. As he was turning into the street, Emma herself appeared at the end of it. He threw himself upon her rather than embraced her, crying, "'What kept you yesterday? I was not well. What was it? Where? How?' She passed her hand over her forehead and answered, "'At Mademoiselle L'Empereur's. I was sure of it. I was going there.' "'Oh, it isn't worth while,' said Emma. She went out just now. But for the future, don't worry.' I do not feel free, you see, if I know that the least delay upsets you like this. This was a sort of permission that she gave herself, so as to get perfect freedom in her escapades, and she profited by it freely, fully. When she was seized with the desire to see Lyon, she set out upon any pretext, and as he was not expecting her on that day, she went to fetch him at his office. It was a great delight at first, but soon he no longer concealed the truth, which was that his master complained very much about these interruptions. Pshaw! Come along, she said, and he slipped out. She wanted him to dress all in black, and grow a pointed beard, to look like the portraits of Louis the Thirteenth. She wanted to see his lodgings, thought them poor. He blushed at them, but she did not notice this then advised him to buy some curtains like her, and as he objected to the expense, ah, ah, you care for your money, she said laughing. Each time Leon had to tell her everything that he had done since their last meeting. She asked him for some verses, some verses for herself, a love poem in honor of her, but he never succeeded in getting rhyme for the second verse, and at the last ended by copying the sonnet in a keepsake. This was less from vanity than from the one desire of pleasing her. He did not question her ideas. He accepted all her tastes. He was rather becoming her mistress than she his. She had tender words and kisses that thrilled his soul. Where could she have learnt this corruption almost incorporeal in the strength of its profanity and dissimulation? End of Part 3 Chapter 5 Recording by Bob Sage.